great worship. Why don't we all bow and pray for our time in the word. God, our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the gathered church that we can gather here and at other campuses and venues as well as certainly online during this time and lift our voices to you, focus our sights upon you, and hopefully, Lord, prepare our hearts to hear what you have to say to us in your special revelation, your word. And so, God, I pray that as we wrap up this series out of this amazing Old Testament book, this book of Jonah, that, God, you would speak to each and every one of us. Lord, break down our defenses as we talk honestly about who Jonah was and where he was uh, in his walk with you. And, Lord, as the title says today, may we learn to run with you in life, uh, not just from you, uh, not just for you, but actually with you. So, A tall prayer indeed, Father. I pray that you would answer that today in each of our hearts and minds and then collectively uh, for us as a whole. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. So I would argue that the longing of every human heart, every human heart, is to connect meaningfully with God. Let me repeat that. The longing of every human heart, I don't care who you are on planet Earth, is to connect meaningfully with God. Uh, Some 1,500 years ago, St. Augustine wrote his autobiographical book called Confessions, and this is what he wrote in part. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So God made us in his image, and kind of like a car is meant to run on fuel, we are meant to run on God. This is similar to a quote you might have heard that is often attributed to Blaise Pascal, but is actually simply a rough paraphrase of what he said, but it's still very good. It goes like this. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. You see, folks, I believe this, that each and every human heart secretly longs to connect with God, and I mean really connect with God, whether they know it or not. And the logic is flawless and inarguable. It goes like this, if God is real, and if he has made us in his image, and if he can be known this side of heaven, then certainly each and every one of us would have something in us that longs to know him. It only makes sense. And again, as I said earlier, I don't care who you are, (laughs) every one of us have this. From T.D. Jakes to Snoop Dogg, from Charles Stanley to Mick Jagger, from Beth Moore to Miley Cyrus. I bet you've never heard all those names in, in, in one setting. But that's the reality. We're all on even footing as human beings. We all desire to run with God this side of heaven. Not from him, living life with God in the rearview mirror. Not even for him, doing all those, these wonderful things to earn his pleasure. But with him, side by side, in intimate relationship. That's what our hearts long for. And the good news is, is that the story of Jonah, the story we've been studying this early summer here at our book, or here at our, our church, agrees. 
And so as we get to the final chapter of this powerful little book, chapter four, it shows us how to run with God, how to relate with him in such a way that we actually run and walk with him. And so let's read chapter four together. Follow along as I read it now. The context is really easy. First three chapters go like this. God calls Jonah to go tell the Ninevites about him. Jonah runs. God chases. Jonah turns. Jonah then preaches to the Ninevites, and the Ninevites repent. And let's read now what happens in chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out from the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for or about the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And some of you are thinking right now, and maybe even rightly so, what in the world does this have to do with running with God? What does this have to do with connecting meaningfully with God, whether I am Beth Moore or Miley Cyrus? Two things. Two things I believe this passage teaches us about how to walk with God in such a way that it can become a lifelong marathon. So first, notice with me that it tells us this, and that is that it's good to get real with God. Let me repeat that because it's all what our church is about. It is good to get real with God. So let's take a closer look at the start of this final chapter of Jonah, and you'll see what I mean. Just after the entire nation of Nineveh had turned to God, anywhere between 120,000 kids and their parents, which could mean a million of them, look again at what it says in verses one and two. It says, but it the repentance of the Ninevites, displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is it not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. So obviously Jonah is mad here. He is angry. Uh, The wording of the narrator here is both precise as well as visual. It's actually really powerful what he does here. He says it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Simply put, not 
happy, <laughs> not pleased at all. There's no joy to be found in what Jonah experienced in chapter 3 with going to the Ninevites. It then further says that Jonah was angry. That word in the original Hebrew that the Old Testament was written, and you're going to like this, literally means to be hot, to burn. Have you ever been so angry that you're red in the face? Have you ever been so angry that you can just feel it in you, that you're, you're hot under the collar or what have you? That's the description here. Get that in your mind. And so as we have this image of Jonah, this angry, what I need you to wrestle with is why. I mean, why is Jonah this red hot mad at the Ninevites' repentance and avoiding of God's judgment? And though you might think you have an answer to this, let's explore some of the options because the Bible experts over the last, you know, 2,000 plus years are all over the map when it comes to answering the question exactly why is Jonah so mad? So for instance, some of them have suggested over the years that Jonah was mad because this made him look like a false prophet. He had predicted doom uh, in chapter three on the Ninevites and then they repented and, and, and now doom did not come and so it kind of made him look like a false prophet. But here's the problem with that. Jonah knew all along that this might happen. He says that in verse two. He says, you know, I, I knew God that you very well might relent and so it doesn't seem likely that this is the core reason he is so mad. And so what others have suggested is that Jonah is angry because he wants to protect God's reputation. You see, he believes the Ninevites won't actually stay in this repentant place, and so they're gonna be fickle just like all the other nations and even Israel was, and so he's kind of mad, they say, because you know God's reputation is gonna be sullied. The problem with that understanding of Jonah's anger is that there doesn't seem to be any evidence at all from the text that this is the case. There's nothing to suggest that this is what was in Jonah's mind. He never makes his argument or even insinuates it. And so what still other Bible experts have suggested over the years is that Jonah is mad, now watch this, because he doesn't like the fact that undeserving sinners get forgiven of their sin. He doesn't like the fact that God is so grace-filled in what he sees as kind of a sloppy way, meaning given to a group of people who have shunned God most of their lives, the Assyrians. And folks, now we're getting closer, hear me, closer. For it is true that the patience and forgiveness of God here bothers Jonah the grace and forgiveness and lack of judgment eats away at Jonah. He says as much. He wanted Nineveh to pay for their sin. He wanted justice, not love and mercy. Some of us can relate. And he was mad and angry that the Ninevites were allowed to escape judgment for decades of sin based on one act of repentance. And though this gets us closer to what is at the core of Jonah's anger, what you need to know is it still doesn't explain fully, now, now wrestle with me for a minute on this, why Jonah would be so angry at the Assyrians. Why he'd be so angry at, at the Assyrians. A, a nation that is ethnically and racially diverse or different from Israel. I mean, think about it, folks. If God's grace and forgiveness to people in response to their moments of repentance bothered Jonah, then you would think he'd have serious problems with his own nation, Israel, right? 
And because Israel was just about as fickle as any other nation. In fact, within less than 60 years, Israel's gonna be ransacked by the Assyrians based on God's judgment because of their apostasy. And the seeds of this were been laid for hundreds of years. So Jonah would have had to know about this. So if Jonah was just mad at God's grace in light of people's sin, you'd think he'd be just as mad at his own nation. But, but he's not. No, I think there's something more going on here with Jonah's anger, something insidiously part of our fallen human souls, something that many reputable and well-known Bible experts, historical and modern day, also see in Jonah. Let me show you, because this is very, very important. Tim Keller, a popular author and the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, says this about Jonah. He says, he, Jonah, refused to treat them, the Ninevites in the nation of Assyria, as human beings in the image of God, and therefore of equal worth with him and his people. Keller argues that Jonah's anger goes beyond mere theological frustration In other words, it's not just this issue of grace and forgiveness to the undeserving. He sees the Assyrians in a very different light, as less than him. And he doesn't treat them as fellow human beings. John Calvin, the great reformer, agrees. In his famous Institute of the Christian Religions, he describes Jonah's mindset and treatment of the Ninevites of, and I quote, very inhuman, very inhuman, But what Keller and Calvin are getting at here is that Jonah's anger, and some of you can relate to this, was personal. This was not just a theological issue. This was not just an issue he had with with people in general. He had it with the Assyrians, and it was personal in nature. Chuck Swindoll, hands down one of the most popular and well-known Bible teachers of our day, cuts right through it all when he says this about Jonah. He says, Jonah was a racist rebel a prejudiced, narrow-minded Jewish prophet. The famous Oxford Dictionary defines racism as this. I'm not gonna put it on the monitor, just listen. They define racism as prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed toward a person or group of persons on the basis of their membership in a particular racial or ethnic group. And folks, when you start to add it up, I think that these proven biblical scholars are onto something. I think they've gotten to the core of what's going on with Jonah's anger. So let's say it for what it is. Jonah is primarily angry because he doesn't like Assyrians. That's what's going on here. And God is about to put his finger on it. And so we know that this is really what's going on here. When God says, I actually love Assyrians, and Jonah, that's what your problem is, you don't love Assyrians. So hide behind all the theology you want, hide behind all the Bible verses you want. What's really going on is that you just don't like these people. You see them as less than you. He feels that they are a nation and class of people not deserving of God's grace and blessings. And that's classic racism. And it's fascinating because, you know, some of the commentators try to say this, but try not to say it very strongly. They try to say, well, you know, Jonah was basically a Hebrew nationalist, (laughs) a Hebrew nationalist, which is a fancy word of saying that, that he struggled with racism in his heart. He saw and viewed an entire nation or group of people as different and less than himself 
And in our modern day and age, that's what we call racism or bigotry. And he's mad that God doesn't share this. He's mad that God's getting in the way of this and showing grace instead of judgment. And he's struggling with racism. And folks, he's not alone. A lot of people down through the centuries and obviously today struggle with this. In fact, I think it's the insecurity of a fallen human soul that is going on here that tends to want to uplift one's insecure self over and against other people. And so when it comes to this, you uplift your physical, cultural, and ethnic differences over and against others not like you, and then you make judgments about them and times even take action over them. And the whole history of the world is that this is all too common among human beings. And what we're seeing here, and it's kind of actually a tender moment between God and Jonah, is that even some of God's holy prophets struggled with this in the Bible. Talk about getting real. It's not pretty. In fact, it's pretty awful, but it is real. And it's what's in Jonah's heart and mind. So Jonah is mad. He doesn't like God's grace extended to these people. Swindoll says it so well. He's a racist rebel. Now, with this much more clear understanding of what is going on with Jonah, I want you to notice with me what Jonah does next because we're gonna apply this to you and me in just a minute here. But before we do, let's look at what Jonah does next because this is very important. And it's not what many people do or even think you should do when you're struggling with an ugly part of your soul. Look again at verse two and let's pause in front of it. After Jonah declares his anger, it says, and he prayed to the Lord and said to him. Now forget for a second what he said. Just notice the action that Jonah took. He prayed to God and he started speaking to him. Folks, let's not do a drive-by on this. There's an action and a response that Jonah has with God. That's why we've called this running with God to his feelings of dislike toward another ethnic group. And what is that action in response? He took what he was feeling, all this racist anger and displeasure as misplaced and sinful as it was, and he took it to God authentically and honestly. He owned it. He didn't act on it, lashing out to others. He didn't read self-help books, trying to fix himself. He didn't go see a counselor. He got real with God. He prayed. He talked to God. As ugly and bad as it was, even as unjustified as his feelings of anger were, he got honest and real with God about it, and he laid it before him. And you need to understand that we're bumping up against a very powerful way of relating to not just God, but other people. And the reason we don't want to relate with other people this way is that we feel like they would judge us and hate us and reject us, and they very well might. But you see, God's not going to do that. As we're going to see in a second here, if you get real with God on this kind of level, he's actually going to meet you. In that reality, even as ugly as your soul might be at that moment, and we'll see what he does here in a minute, but he's not going to reject you. Peter would say it this way, cast all your anxiety upon him, your anxiety, because he cares for you. And it's powerful on a spiritual and psychological level. Psychologists have known for years 
that the way our emotions get messed up is that we think wrong things and then we do wrong things and your emotions, which are like a dummy light on the car, begin to light up. And so if you have emotions of anger or hurt or depression or what have you, they are most likely, uh, any psychologist will tell you, the result of years of stinking thinking, years of bad behavior. And the point is, is that you're not gonna get over those right away. We're gonna see that with Jonah. You don't just say, okay, I won't be mad or I won't feel depressed or I won't feel sad. Any of you that experience those emotions in their fullness, no, you don't get over them by just wishing them away. It took years of stinking thinking for you to get there. <laughs> and it took years of, of, of wrong actions or hurtful actions maybe mitigated against you for you to get there. And it's gonna take a long time now for you to start to, to heal from them. But it begins by getting honest with them and processing them. And that's exactly what is happening here with Jonah, and it can, can help or can be this way for us as well. I believe this is how God has wired each of us with feelings and emotions that even when they get really ugly and even when they're grossly unfair, like with emotions of hate, God still wants us to get, get real about them and bring them to him. And yet real quickly, before we apply this to our lives today, let's be honest in the house of God, Many, many Christians especially don't live like this in what we're seeing with Jonah. Because of the pain and the displeasure that emotions can cause in our lives, like anger, hurt, disappointment, sadness, frustration, we tend to do these with our emotions. We deny them. You ever met a Christian like that? Happens to me almost weekly. Somebody will come to my office and I can just see it on their face, they're angry, and I'll say, what are you so angry about? And they'll basically say, I'm not angry about anything. You know, they're literally twitching. And I go, well, you actually are, but you, you're denying it right now. Or how about this? We push them down. You ever heard a Christian or somebody say, you know, I shouldn't feel this way. God doesn't want me to feel this way. I need to stop feeling this way. Here's the problem with that is if you push it down, they're gonna come up in other venues. <laughs> Years ago, a psychologist taught me that, that basically um, anger is depression turned inward. I'm sorry, no, depression is anger turned inward. So if you get depressed, as I have been many times in my life, it's because I'm angry like Jonah, and yet I'm trying to push it down, and that just leads to depression in my soul. So we deny them, we push them down. Or, or better yet, here's what many, many Christians do, we cover them up. We keep busy by serving the Lord, keep moving and piling on whatever we can to just sort of cover these things over, while all the time, all the while, God is saying, just get real with me. <laughs> I know what's going on in your heart. I see it, even if you don't, Jonah. So thank you that as ugly as it is that you're finally coming to me in prayer and talking to me because now it's out on the table and we can deal with it. We need to get real. Jonah did. He prayed and spoke to God. He got his anger out in the open, and now God is going to be able to deal with that. And so before we go on to look at how God deals with that with Jonah, I wonder if now is not a good time for you and me to begin to follow Jonah here, especially when it comes to our view of people who are not like us, our inherent prejudice, and might I even say, uh, racism. You know, I made clear a, a couple of weeks ago when I made some comments on racism and culture and the church, and, I, and I'm going to repeat some of them right now. 
is that as I look at all that's going on in our culture right now, I'm not a pastor of culture. (laughs) So I really don't have any interest to try to convince Scottsdale or Phoenix or let alone America of God's values and God's truth because I have the theological opinion that until people bend the knee to Jesus, they can't really do what God asks for them anyway. So when I see all this stuff going on in culture today, that's basically about social action and legislating change. I'm not against that. Don't ever hear me saying that. It's just that my role as your pastor, and I would argue your role as the church, is not to follow along with that, though you might want to get involved with some of them, that's fine, but that's not your main role. Our main role as a church is to do business with God and each other as a community of faith, and as we address these issues, if you will, to do them God's way. And by the way, this is eminently biblical. I mean, I have so much biblical evidence that this is how God's people have done this for thousands of years. They did not follow the flow of culture. No, they followed the flow of God's values as they build a community that eventually will then have impact on culture. But it's the church having impact as a redeemed community, not the other way around. So Peter would say it this way to his audience. You gotta love this passage. He says, and you've heard this before, but maybe not in this context. He says, judgment begins with the house of God. (laughs) So what is he saying there? He's saying whenever you confront an issue in your lives or in the culture around you, man, close in ranks, deal with it as a church, and start to do the things that God wants you to do to address this issue. Don't just follow the whims of culture. And one of the things that God always wants his people to do, now we're gonna get somewhere, when it comes to any issue that presents us, is to search our hearts before God and ask him, God, do I struggle with this? David in Psalm 139, many of you know this passage, essentially says to God with wide open arms, search me, God, and test me. Look deeply into my heart and see if there's any offensive way in me. It's a beautiful thing that David does. And folks, I would argue that this is where it all begins. This is where God's people start. And when it comes to the, the, the call to, to deal with racism in our American culture, I believe that's exactly where God wants us to start. Judgment begins with the house of God. And for each and every one of us, I beg you as your pastor to not be afraid to look in your own heart and mind. And before you do action, before you say this is our plan, what have you, man, be honest before God like Jonah was and say, Lord, How and where do I struggle in my attitudes and my thoughts toward those around me? And you don't need to be threatened with this today. I told you when we started this process a couple of weeks ago that we're not gonna be trendy with this, that we believe so much in the unity and equality of all people that we as a church have committed now to being in this in the long haul. We desire a diverse community here at Scottsdale Bible. And so we are gonna take measured, serious, sober, at times passionate approaches to racism and unity. And so don't be threatened here. This is just the first conversation we're gonna have of many. And all I'm asking you to do today is to pull a Jonah and to privately before God, this is just between you and God, ask him to search your heart and get real about what is in there. 
you know, I'm doing this right now too, and Lord knows that I have issues in my heart to deal with, even as it comes to how I view other people who aren't like me. And, uh, and, and yet, one of the things, reasons I think I can safely lead us in this is because back in Detroit in the 1990s, I pastored there for nine years as an associate pastor. It was a great experience in a city that at that time was extremely racially mixed and also very racially segregated. And, and so we spent nine years trying to, to do a lot of work with unity and breaking down racial barriers. And the reason I know that what I'm suggesting today, what we're seeing in Jonah works, is because this is what my pastor challenged me and our church with back early in the early 1990s to, before we do anything, just search your heart and get honest before God about where you are in this. Is there any offensive way in you? How do you view other people around you that are different from you? Do you stereotype them? Do you, do you classify them as a group and then make judgments on them, which is really the core of racism? And so I had to search my heart a lot in the 90s. And though I'm not gonna tell you stories right now, we'll save those for another time. Let's just suffice it to say that, that like most white Christians, I didn't think or believe that I struggled with this at all. But when I asked God to search my heart, as only God can do, because he's so good, he, he started to percolate some things in me. In which I said, ooh, I didn't know that, I, ooh, I didn't know that was, ooh, I didn't know that was there. And he started to bring some of those things to the surface. You see, that's the point. <laughs> you ask the average white Christian today if they have any you know, racist or prejudicial tendencies, the average person, almost every one of them say, no, that's not me. Here's a problem with that line of thinking, and this is what we have to wrestle with as a church, is that when you then ask either black people or Latino people or Asian people or Native American people, that when they come into our presence, into our community, do they feel that there's no racism or prejudice in us at all? the vast majority of them will say, I kind of feel it. <laughs> it's not blatant. You know, we don't use foul language or anything like that. And, and yet they feel that we look and treat them differently and not positively differently. I met with three African-American couples or mixed race couples uh, about a week ago, and, and I just listened. I, I think that's what we have to do as we're moving on here. After we search our hearts, just listen to our brothers and sisters and they told me stories, and I'm not gonna repeat because they were their stories. They'll tell you maybe someday. And they love this church. They love this church. But they told me stories of just how they have felt people have looked at them and treated them in the midst of our ecclesia, our gathering, our church. And it made me sad. And it made me realize that I don't think some of us intend to be this way, but this is why you have to search your heart, that there are things going on in our hearts that, that leak out Daryl used to always say that, that, you know, best indication of what's in your heart is when you get bumped and, and what leaks out. And, and, and these things leak out and, and they feel certain things from us. And so I know that it's a good thing for you and I to just search our hearts at this point and just get honest about what's going on in us as individuals and then maybe even collectively as a whole. I'm not making judgments. I'm saying search your heart and what's so cool about this gang is that if you can drop your defenses and just go with me on this and trust me as your pastor, if you can do that, what's so incredibly cool about this is that this is not the pathway our world is taking. You look at our world today and they're rioting and they're tearing down statues and they wanna defund entire aspects of our culture. And again, I'm not making judgments on whether that's right or wrong. I'm simply saying that's what the world is doing. The response is strongly, maybe even rightly so, reactionary to this. 
But you know what's funny? Is that as I look at the media and the Hollywood elite, all chime in on this. I haven't heard one person, not one white person yet, say like Jonah did, well, I kind of struggle with this. (laughs) They dare not, because if they do, they know that they're probably gonna be judging their life is over. You see, the church does things differently. We are the safest place on earth, as Larry Crabb once said, or at least we're supposed to be. And so the church is a community where like Jonah did, we can get real and get real with God and then see what he does next. That's all I'm asking of you today as we start a very long, intentional, and we're not leaving this conversation about what all this means for Scottsdale Bible Church as we become one body in Christ. Now, one final thing we need to note about Jonah and this story before we close it out. And it's a rather important piece of the puzzle in learning to run with God. And that is, what is God's response when we pull a Jonah and dare to finally get real and honest about what's going on in here? Look at the second thing this book shows us with. And, and honestly, this is where the book ends. And that is that when you get real with God, he will get real back. <laughs> when you get real with God, he will get real back. So here, here's the deal. And that is that when you come to God as you are and get real with him about what's going on in your soul, here's the beautiful thing about his grace, though it's not gonna always feel like his grace. He will respond to you because he loves you and he will begin to move and speak in your life. In other words, as you commit to running with him, he will run with you. And it can actually become a very long marathon-like run. It won't be easy. At times you're gonna go through the tunnel of chaos with God, but better than being on the sidelines. And Jonah shows us this. So let's unpack the rest of this story and then we'll wrap things up. Here's how the story wraps up. As we've seen, Jonah gets real with God about his anger and his bigotry, which he doesn't see at this point as wrong. And then as we know, Jonah leaves the city and makes a shelter in the desert just outside of the city limits. And you gotta love his motivation because he really is a, a very stubborn man. And he does so to see if God might not just destroy the Assyrians, and he wants to get a nice, good view of that destruction. And then God, now don't miss that, God, because Jonah's now running with God, because he's got an honest with God, appoints a plant to grow. It's most likely a plant, we know what the plant was, it's a castor oil plant that grows in that area that has very large palm leaves. And God causes this plant to grow to shade Jonah and provide shelter in that desert sun. We all know what that's like. Jonah's feeling pretty good now. He spends the night, and the next day, God, who's running with him, uh, decides to to cause a worm to come and eat away at the plant, and it withers and starts to beat down on Jonah, and then even a strong, hot wind off the desert floor comes, and now Jonah's miserable. And again, we all know what that's like. And he begs Jonah to die. I mean, Jonah begs God to to let him die, because again, the city of Nineveh is still standing, and, and Jonah's miserable. And then God begins to dialogue with Jonah. And when you look closely at the dialogue, he's reasoning with Jonah's stinking thinking and his prejudice. And he basically begins by asking Jonah a question. You gotta love it. He says, hey, Jonah, do you still have a reason to be angry? And again, this is a stubborn prophet, isn't he? Because he says, yes, I still have a reason to be angry, God. And then God gives the one-two punch. He gives an object lesson along with an analogy. He says, you know, Jonah, you cared about this plant because it gave you shade and you didn't create the plant I did. You didn't nurture it, I did. 
And, and now that the plant is gone, you're, you're angry. And he said, how much more do you think, because I don't really care about plants, do I care about all people from Beth Moore to Miley Cyrus, from Israel to Nineveh and the Assyrians, because I have created them and sustained them. See, God is basically nudging Jonah, now that Jonah's gotten honest with him, into right thinking. Basically, God is saying, all people matter to me. (laughs) It's not just the holy huddle I care about. In fact, sometimes I get really ticked at them. (laughs) No, I, I care a lot about this world that I has created. I care a lot about all the people that I've created, Jonah. And I wish you'd care just as much about them as you do about stupid plants. (laughs) Or maybe in our day and age, we might say, I wish you'd care about all the people on planet Earth as much as you do about your car, your house, your 401k, about all the other things that, that are your plant. And so don't miss that God is running with Jonah. And Jonah is now running with God. And it's not easy it's really messy, but, but don't miss this. Spiritual sparks are flying. You know, one of the problems with American Christianity, and we don't mean it to be this way, is that, man, we just try to whitewash and sanitize our walk with God, especially in towns like Scottsdale, and just make everything look pretty and nice. You know, we wake up in the morning and the sun is shining and we pull the shade and we grab our little daily bread and we start to read and we say, oh, isn't that nice? And then we pray our prayers. And again, God's in all that. I'm not down on that. I mean, that's your life, fine. But you know, God knows that you have a fallen and sinful soul. He knows that you have rough edges. As much as you might look nice on the outside, you got rough edges that need to be roughed off. And he doesn't want you just to wake up and have a nice little quiet time, though that's good. He wants to be involved deeply with your fallen, very rebellious at times soul. And he wants to meet you in that, but he won't if you don't get real. But which is why the vision of our church is to get God, get real, and then get out there in that order. Because <laughs> until you get God, you can't get real with him. But once you get God, get real with him and then get out there. But when you get real with God, what we're seeing with Jonah here is that he's gonna get real back. And it's messy, but sparks are flying. Truth is now wrestled with. The soul can start to form. And it's what running with God is all about. We're fast running out of time, but one wrap-up thought about Jonah that's very, very profound. It's not mine. It's all over the commentators. You probably noticed that the book of Jonah, like the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus would tell thousands of years later, ends without resolve. Did you pick up on that? Like, the book ends with God giving these words to Jonah and then saying, you know, hey, to Jonah, hey, you know, I care about this nation that has, you know, 120,000 people don't know their right hand from their left. And we don't even know what that really means. <laughs> and then the book ends. And it's kind of left hanging for those of us who like a good story. I mean, if a modern day writer was to write a book like that, they wouldn't get published because the editorial board would say, look, you gotta finish the book. But this is God we're dealing with, right? And with Jesus and the prodigal son, because it ends almost exactly the same way with the father pleading with the son, or I'm sorry, the older brother, uh, to to receive grace and and to not just always fight for fairness. And then it ends without resolve. And, and, And it leaves a lot of questions unanswered. Like with Jonah. Like did Jonah say, oh my gosh, Lord, you're right. I'm struggling with prejudice and bigotry and even racism in my heart. And, I, and you're right, you love all people. I, I'm gonna get with your program. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get that long haul back to you. Does Jonah do that? Or like he has done through all of chapter 40, does he continue to deal his, dig his heels in? We don't know. And commentators really don't wrestle that much with why this 
is. The reason that I think God lets the book end like this is because he wants us to wrestle with the conclusion. Now watch this, on what we think the conclusion should be, and then even more importantly, what the conclusion will be for your life and maybe for me for my life. So what should the conclusion be if we were to write the end of Jonah? What would we want it to be? And then most importantly, are we gonna write the end of the story for ourselves? I actually love that about biblical literature. And so this is a great place for us to wrap up the book. Let's begin the conversation today. Let's begin the conversation today by starting with God and being honest about what's in your heart. Jonah was honest. You gotta at least give him that. Are we willing to be the same with God? Where are we with other people who aren't like us? But where are we with all that's going on in our world right now? Individually, what's our worldview? What's our thinking on this? What do we really, what's really in our heart when it comes to African-American people and Latino people and Asian people, Native American people, Iranian people? I mean, the world is such beautiful diversity. But again, it's so easy to get tribal in the way that we function. And what is in your heart? That's where the conversation needs to start for God's people. And again, as you get real with God, just duck, because he's gonna get real back with you, mainly because he loves you and he cares for you and he certainly loves his church. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. God, our heavenly father, I just love this story that you have preserved for us throughout all of history the, the account of Jonah. And Lord, we've seen through this, this story how Jonah had this propensity to run from you, and we now know why, because of what was in his heart and how he knew you'd be. And then, Lord, we see him learn to run back to you, and then he obeys you and runs for you. And Lord, today we've seen just a little bit and what it means to run with you. And so, Father, I pray that as we each, boy, if ever there was a time to search our hearts, search our hearts as the start of a conversation that might show more love, grace, unity, equality, even action toward our brothers and sisters who are hurting and have been hurting for, for, for centuries uh, in our country, God. And now we have the opportunity to really do something about it, but it begins with probing our heart before you. God, would your Holy Spirit be with us in that process, each of us individually. And then, Lord, as we continue that conversation over time, God, would you move in our midst Would you have your way with your people? Would you bring unity? And truly, Lord, might you make Scottsdale Bible Church and so many other churches in this country and around the world the safest place on earth? Lord, one thing we have seen with the culture around us is that it's anything but safe, especially in tumultuous times. But your church in your hands can be that way. It has been always. And so God, do that in us, we pray. But it begins with each of us being real with you. Thank you for the vision that you have given us. Thank you for this amazing story of Jonah. May we follow in the path that you have set for us. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.